High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, fans of Malcolm McDowell, friends from the UK, and a special shout out to all you prep school students out there. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where means some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the party's at my place this evening, but first, school's still in session, and we have some homework to chat about. This was your assignment, and I would like to see the results. So here in New York City, it's like the first days of spring. It's going to get cold again. We know that. But you know those first days of spring where everyone starts wearing T-shirts, even though it's like 50, 60 degrees? I love it. I love it. But I just tell you kind of about it, because if you hear some bumping music in the background... In my neighborhood, in my neck of the woods, once the weather gets nice, people start hanging out in the park, playing music. I tried to wait for a quiet moment. It didn't happen all day, so I apologize. You would think we weren't in a pandemic, but hey, (laughs) it is what it is. Well, I'm not going to dismiss it like that, but I guess it's not my place to legislate that on this podcast. Anyway, if you hear some bachata in the background, you know why. Okay, homework. Let's talk about it Did you listen to last week's episode Friday? Danny Kim was here, one of my favorites, and we talked The Squid and the Whale. Super cool movie, super indie movie, super great to talk to him. Really in-depth conversation, so you definitely want to check that out. And remember, you can check out all old episodes at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me, the home of our archives. And of course, where you're listening right now, you can check out that episode. Google Play or Google Podcasts, I'm still screwing that up, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And while you're there, you know the homework every week, hit that subscribe button. Come on, do it for me. I charge the very low price of $0.00 for this show every week, and sometimes bi-weekly. The least you can do is subscribe, right? Do I sound like I'm begging? Because I am. (laughs) What? It really helps us out. But the one way you can even up that support and it is your homework so it's not even support it's something you have to do tell a friend about all the wonderful things that happen here on high school slumber party oh i also hope you did this week's homework which was to watch a film called if if dot 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 this is one of the greatest British films of all time, or at least it's considered that. I think it's number 12 on the British Film Institute's list of British films. That's a mouthful, and it's a really good film. It's an intense film, 1968, late 60s, very counterculture film, and I can't think of someone better to co-host with me today. That's Mike Manzi, the most tenured person in high school slumber party, so I hope you watched If... <laughs> 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. The bell doesn't dismiss you. I dismiss you. And if you did watch If, you realize how lenient of a teacher I am. Because if I was anything like those teachers in If, well, I don't believe in that kind of punishment, so we won't go there. (laughs) Anywho, a couple other things I want to mention before I let you guys listen to this episode. I was actually guesting on another Cage Club Podcast Network episode this week. Well, I recorded it this week, but it comes out Tuesday the 16th. The show is The Contenders, Island Addington, Tobin Addington. Great show on this network. They watch a lot of really women-centric films, women-directed, women-produced, and they wanted to talk Moxie with me. Because Moxie is this film a lot of people are talking about on Netflix, Amy Poehler directed, real cool feminist film. We're going to talk Moxie on this podcast as well, don't worry, more on that at the end of the episode. But I guessed it on their podcast and it was so much fun, check it out, and I actually have a very special announcement that I made on their podcast that has to do with me and Island and something we're going to do for this show. So I definitely want you to listen to that episode and then get back to me. Why don't you hit us up on social media? You know class participation is a huge part of your grade. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Once you hear that announcement, I want to hear if you're excited or not because I'm really excited. So the show is The Contenders on the Cage Club Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcast. The day is Tuesday, March 16th. And the movie is Moxie. So watch Moxie. That's some little early homework tidbit for you. And trust me, you want to listen to that episode. It is an earth-shattering announcement for this show. I'll leave it at that. And I know I've kept you a long time. A long time. Well, not really, but it feels like a long time. It's Friday. You get it. I know you want to go home. So let's do it. Let's get into our discussion of If with Mike Manzi. Pack your favorite jammies. Tell your mother you're sleeping over Brian's because we're about to get our party on. Class dismissed. Mike, we have a good one today. We have one, um, I'll admit, I hadn't seen before today. So, really excited to talk if. And by the way, this is if with four, what is it, ellipsis? Yes. Periods after the IF, if, not three, four. If, dot, 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 dot. <laughs> the rare dot, 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 but I'm all in. <laughs> the I, elusive four dots. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's how you know it's good. Mike, you're the most prolific guest on High School Slumber Party. Oh. But you still got to introduce yourself. That's how we do it here. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself so we can get right away on this one, because a lot of background on this film. Right, yo. So first I'll just start off by saying, hello, mate. Mike Manze <laughs> here. RHS, class of 97. Go Maroons, Bob's your uncle. Manzi feels like the least British name. Like, I guess Rodriguez <laughs> wouldn't... Too, but you know what I mean? Like in the accent, it just doesn't sound like. <laughs> hmm, how could I change that up? Oh, Man Street. How's yeah, that? Yeah, man, <laughs> man, man Street. <laughs> 
Oh, man. Okay, so if your choice, you kind of sent me a message the other day yeah. like one, that you wanted to talk about this film. Had you seen it before? What's your history with If? Yeah, so kind of a funny history with this. I was thinking back. I'd only seen it in its entirety once. Uh, it was one of the first Criterion Blu-rays I think I got when they when I started switching over to, to Criterion Blu-rays from the DVDs and everything. And I had remembered it from high school around the time where I first was exposed to Clockwork Orange because we should say the star's... Uh, Malcolm McDowell. This is his first film. This is like introducing him. On not, the not Roddy McDowell. No, not my other fave, Roddy McDowell. He was uh, well into, I think he was making Planet of the Apes the very next year. What do you know? So wow. very good time for both uh, McDowells and anyone else in the family. But um, the funny thing is like, I was watching this on like AMC or Encore or something like that. And I thought it was Clockwork Orange, because <laughs> I was like a teenager. Like I hadn't seen that movie yet. I did, I just knew he was in it. I had seen pictures at like like the stores I'd go to to get my like punk records and clothing and everything. They'd have Clockwork Orange T-shirts like up the ass. You know, they're everywhere. That imagery. Of course. You know, so I was watching it for a few minutes, and I was like, this definitely isn't that movie. Uh, but I'd like to come back and revisit it someday. And then, you know, I, I saw Clockwork Orange. It's amazing. You know, that's a whole other story. But I eventually got back to If at some point. I mean, I was just, I think it was after college, I was just on a riff of trying to watch stuff from other countries, right? And I think I was getting really into Edgar Wright at the time. And so he was making me sort of dig back into the British film history and stuff. And I came across this again. I was like, I remember this movie. And I was like, what if I watched it? (laughs) And so I did. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd never seen it before. It's been on my list, but frankly, I knew nothing about it. So when you picture to me, like, okay, that's a movie we can knock off the list. I didn't realize how acclaimed it was, like you said, Criterion Collection. So it's from 1968. Some places will list 1969, but it is 1968. We'll get into the reason why they list 1969 later. But if from 1968, it's really available. It's on Prime, but this is a movie that, like, you could, I don't want to say illegally watch, but it's streamed on, like, Daily Motion and things like that. If you don't have a Prime membership. It's not a hard movie to find, is my point. But you mentioned, if you are a Criterion guy, it is Criterion Collection. And every week we read the back of the DVD or Blu-ray. So I chose to read the aforementioned Criterion Collection one. So here goes. Lindsay Anderson's If is a daringly anarchic vision of British society set in a boarding school in the late 60s England. Before Kubrick made Malcolm McDowell's mischief icon in A Clockwork Orange, the actor made a hell of an impression as the incessant Mick Travis, who, along with his school chums, trumps authority at every turn, finally emerging as a violent savior against the draconian games of one-upsmanship played by both students and the powers that be. Mixing color and black and white as audaciously as it mixes fantasy and reality, if remains one of cinema's most unforgettable rebel yells. A lot of Criterion mm. Collection words in there. So sorry. <laughs> yeah, high vocabulary it, it, over in those offices. <laughs> Again, like I said, I had not realized the production history of this film, the history behind this film. Took a lot of notes, did some research. So here goes. So David Sherwin is the writer here, and this was his idea, and it was based on his own experiences in private school. I'm going to go ahead and assume 
that those experiences in British private school did not include gunning down his classmates, or else he wouldn't have made this movie. <laughs> yeah, I think by the time we get to that and we'll discuss it, it's sort of veered off into fantasy. But yeah, no, he may have wanted to, and I, I think I can relate after watching this. Um, and it was originally titled Crusaders. It got the title changed to If later in production. So him and his writing partners were pitching to a bunch of directors. One of them was Nicholas Ray, who directed Rebel Without a oh. Cause, which we haven't covered yet, but it's a really important film in this genre. Some people say the film that started it all. Ray actually liked it. Uh, he was interested in it, but unrelatedly suffered a nervous breakdown, so he couldn't say yes. Um, another prolific uh, director who you guys could look up, Seth Holt, British director. He's directed a ton of movies. He loved it as well. But he didn't think he was right for the job, and he's the one who hooked them up with the eventual director, Lindsay Anderson. And Lindsay Anderson is the one who has his fingerprints all over this thing. Oh, okay, yeah. Seth Holt, I think, mostly known for, like, Hammer films. So, kind of like from the horror uh, area over there. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask if you knew him, because it seemed like it was someone like you might be aware of. I wasn't, but he that dude's, like, if you look at his IMDb, directed so many movies. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh yeah, I could see just like he's connected to a very uh, big Italian cult film, Danger uh, Diabolic. So that's enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was shot at a bunch of private schools in England, a bunch of them, and you kind of have to oh, do that. Okay. the The look, the aesthetic of the English private school is so different than you know, let's be honest, the American high school or anything really mm -hmm. in the world. It's a very unique environment. Not just the aesthetic, but just the whole idea of the English and British private school yeah. is so unique to that culture and that country that you kind of have to shoot on location. They didn't have a big yeah. budget anyway. They weren't going to you know, have a studio shot of it. And come on, you don't want that. So th they were able to do it uh, for a couple reasons. One, they were kind of going between location to location. And two, they were submitting scripts that did not include the ending and some of the more mm. racy stuff to the okay. headmasters of these private schools. Yeah. Some did get wind of what was going on and kicked them out, but mostly they were like, you know, they thought, oh, this is just a movie filming here. Cool. Another reason why it was filmed at a couple different private schools was that, like, they had to do it in the summer, like, in between the summer sessions, and these things were booked already, or, the, you know, they had students on campus certain days, so they were kind of alternating in that way. Uh, yeah, the one main reason I wanted to do this movie is because I was just fascinated with the school experience like the, that's portrayed here. I mean, we have boarding schools in America and stuff, but I, are they all ages like this? And then there's just the idea that they could shoot at so many different schools and make it feel like it's just one place because they're all so like institutional and like the same almost and, and, and they're all filthy as filthy gets too so like that's all really cool to learn that they're sort of hopping around at these different uh, boarding schools or places and filming them all and everything like that so and, and also just like the way those schools function and operate it's so crazy different than anything that i've been exposed to the closest we have here is like something you'd see in like dead poet society like those kind of like uppity yeah pre-Ivy League boarding schools, but they're not like this. No, I was almost even thinking summer camp in America because that's when, oh, you, that's get, true. That's when you get sort of like the class structure and the older kids looking after the younger kids and they're all ages and everything. But that's designed for fun. This is not. This is <laughs> no, punishment. No, it's definitely not. <laughs> 
I mean, they say it's like a hundred upon hundred, even thousand year tradition here. So yeah, you it, see that one picture of the class, and it's like the the length of the entire wall. There's like a thousand people in the pictures. <laughs> it's amazing. It's insane. It, it's insane. And there's a lot of distinctions that you and I, not being uh, British private school boys, probably won't understand. One thing I want to distinguish because people have asked me this. This says college a lot. College a lot. It is not what we think of as college. College in the UK yeah. and a lot of other countries is high school, essentially. Like, that's the easiest way to explain it, especially when it's a high school like this. Like, if it's a prep school, if it's a boarding school, they call it college because it's a little bit elevated. And then the years are different, obviously. They don't call them juniors, freshmen, seniors. And the ages can be a little bit different, too. It's kind of when you enroll, not necessarily your... Like, in America, it goes strictly by age, you know? There, it's kind of enrollment... But the comps would be, like, the younger kids, even though they look young, they're maybe, like, just a year younger than freshmen. Um, okay, so, yeah. so those are freshmen in our eyes, you know. That's how we'll compare it as Americans. Our main characters here are juniors. That's yeah. the, the comparison. And then the baddie baddies are seniors. Okay. The whips. Yep. The yeah. whips. And then what do they call the freshmen? Like, the sludge? Yeah, the sludge. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> So one of the unique features, as mentioned on the back of that Criterion Collection uh, DVD or Blu-ray, whatever it was, is that whole black and white switching thing. Sometimes they're things in color, sometimes they're things in black and white. And apparently there was a rumor for years that that was because of budget constraints. Uh, But on the DVD commentary, Malcolm McDowell, who, by the way, we'll get into because I really want to talk more Malcolm McDowell. But uh, he says that that is actually not the case that when they shot in the chapel, that the light from the stained glass did not mm. look great on the color film stock at the time. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not like a film expert, but yeah. it was very grainy the way the okay. light was coming in. So they shot that in black and white and they said, wow, this looks great. And then just to match that and because and it, it looks so cool, they started to add in the other random parts of black and white to more fit the... You know, this kind of new aesthetic of the film. Okay, yeah, that's interesting to know that at first it, it was sort of um, by necessity or, or something, or you know, and then they're like, hey, let's incorporate this, let's make it part of the look of the film, and they'd start doing it sort of arbitrarily, but then at some points it almost feels intentional where they're trying to get, like, mm-hmm. maybe maybe deeper into, like, some subtext or something. So it's kind of cool how they found their way with that, and yeah, I had always heard it was uh, completely arbitrary, like, they just you know, would pick up this, pick up, like, throw me the black and white, like, we'll just keep going, or whatever, you know, so it's kind of nice to know that there was an actual reason at first, and then a little play with it, and then finally sort of finding its place. For sure, and that's something so forgotten by, I think, maybe younger, our younger listeners out there, just how, you know, film was film, you know, and just how, uh, Oh yeah, yeah. No, you could you could tell if you watch a movie made yesterday and a movie made forty years ago the way that the light is affected by film and video, right? It's so obvious. So like, there's even subtle differences between certain film stocks, between film size, between you know black and white and color. Like it gets so sort of meticulous at some level that uh, you know an extremely trained eye can tell. But for the most part, like it's just there to stimulate the viewer. You know, like they're not really sure what's going on, but it's certainly always taken into account. For sure, and I was reading like a little expanded there that like black and white film since they had been working on it, and obviously color or whatever, but the chemistry of it was so much more uh, you know finer tuned than the color stock at the time. 
which was harder to kind of get right in strange lighting situations. Obviously, they would fix that many years later, or probably soon to this, but it's just fascinating, just the practicalness of that. Some other notes from the production. This was a big movie for a lot of people. A lot of people who worked on this film would go on for many, many years, even through to today, to still be doing projects. Um, Stephen Frears was the assistant to the director. Not the AD, like the director's assistant. Yeah. And he would go on to direct High Fidelity, The Queen, Dangerous Liaisons. So he's getting a start on this set. Wow. The cinematographer is Miroslav Onderekik. <laughs> if, <I, laughs> yeah. if I mispronounce that, I apologize. Which I read, he spoke little to no English at the time, and he would go on to have a really great uh, DP career as well. Yeah. He did Amadeus, one of your favorites, League of Their Own. Yeah, shot a bunch of American, shot Funny Farm, for crying Funny out loud, Farm. for Chevy Chase. Like, that's amazing. But You go from this to Funny Farm, hilarious. But just, <laughs> that's one thing I noticed, though. You click on people's IMDb here, and even if you don't know their name, so many of them, in production mostly, mm-hmm. so many of them went on to do, just be prolific. Not just like do hits, but just do like two or three films a year. Yeah, had a career. It was crazy. Yeah. Another person, Chris Mengis, he was a cameraman on this, and he became a very accomplished cinematographer. He won the Oscar for The Killing Fields. He also did Michael Collins, The Mission, The Reader. So, you know, just starting out as a cameraman here, mm-hmm. doing that. The mission, he followed Robert De Niro up a mountain. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen that movie in a while. Oh, we watched it in history class in like sixth grade. I think that. I was was just going to say, like, that's the last time I watched the movie, like in a class. (laughs) Um, And of course, this movie's pretty famous for a lot of things. Apparently, not to me, but now it's famous (laughs) to me. But it's famous for a lot of things, and one of them was the risque nature and the original X rating due to the violence and the oh, nudity. Oh, I did not know that. I did not know that. The, the, is is it all intact here? Are we getting that version on the Criterion cut, and is this just as like what they considered so yes, too much? Yes and no. Yes and no. So the original cut, they wouldn't even release. So we're not getting that, but... I believe the Criterion, and that is the X cut. The problem is, at the time, there just wasn't a lot of movies, especially British movies, that were terribly risque. You know, Clockwork Orange would change the game a couple years later for this. Right. It would be banned, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, at the time, this was like, oh, man. Especially with kids in a British prep school. The big issues to the film board or whatever in Britain were, like I said, the violence and the nudity. The violence, they knew they needed to keep, so that was kind of non-negotiable to them. So they kind of said, you have to change the nudity. And believe it or not, mm-hmm. believe it or not, they had made a trade. So this is so, it sounds so silly, but they agreed not to show any penises <laughs> in the shower scenes. All right. If they, they got close. If they, <laughs> they got close, but they didn't. If they could show frontal female nudity bush right yeah there's a yeah there's a shot and this is the first time in british film history that it was ever shown on like a wide release wow interesting hmm yeah you can't get rid of the violence because they're at a pseudo military academy you know so like they will be having war games and stuff and it's kind of like taps at a moment and things like that (laughs) going on and so like the climax 
you know, you have to rewrite it entirely. Like, this feels like a natural outcome for a character's line of thinking throughout. Like, I'm watching this guy through the movie. Like, this is how he wants to end the day, you know? Like, you can't change that. The sex stuff is so fucking weird in this movie. Like, I'm surprised <laughs> that they were having issues with the visible sex stuff and not the audio audible stuff because there's a lot of, like, homoerotic and, like, kind of negative homoeroticism, like, going on. And not, like, that it's being exactly portrayed in a bad way, but that these people are, like, kind of despicable in the way that they're, like, servicing that and everything. And I think that's the point, you know, because then we see a bunch of the, like, like Mick and his friends are very horny for girls. Like, their room is just adorned with nudity of women and stuff. So it's kind of interesting what they were able to get away with on other levels, like storytelling-wise and things like that that snuck through because those were the those were the things that were making my ears go up and be like, wow, I can't believe they kind of, they were able to do this back then. Yeah, yeah, it was very interesting in that respect. And I don't know if they just like snuck that in or something, but it, it also mm-hmm. goes to that whole thing that uh, these film boards, especially at the time, are not as concerned with language, which is weird, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. There's so much, it, like, what seems like a lot of cursing. Like, I can't understand all of it, but it feels like they're, you know, very uh, harsh language. It would be later. I would say, like, the 80s, right? Or 90s, even, where they're, like, you know, after after films like Scarface that are just dropping F-bombs left and right in the United oh, States. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Scorsese era, right. Yeah, where they start to be concerned with language. But language is kind of one of those things allowed. It was like, oh, no, don't show a naked girl. Like, that was the big thing. <laughs> and just quickly to, like, the militarization of this school, that really comes from from what I read, World War One and World War Two. Um, th- th- these are not military academies, but they worked it into the curriculum from that because again this is from i could be completely off so if you're like a professor in british history you let me know but since they're being bombarded by the nazis for example they're under attack all their soldiers are abroad it was expected that these young kids if the island was invaded would be ready to defend it so they started to add it to school curriculums prep school curriculums and they kind of kept it through this era and it's a weird juxtaposition of like, oh, the film was obviously highlighting that, but like, oh, be gentlemen, blah, blah, blah. And then they have such a, you know, oh, we're going to have a, you know, real live drills here. Yeah. Not with live bullets. Well, but, you know. <laughs> I know. It's weird how they're conditioning these kids, right? Like, it, that's kind of what it feels like, too, is that they're just beating sense into them. And the messages seem so mixed, you know, it's like. There's no way, like, I don't know how these kids are able to survive, and, like, most of them become cruel bastards, you know, and the others just become, uh, their will gets broken, and they're entirely subservient to what's going on, you know? Like, it's just, it's fascinating to watch these young men. And even though this is the 60s, there's a lot of talk still of the British Empire, that they're building gentlemen to preserve oh, yeah. the greatness that is the UK, and it's it's insane. Like I'm I'm no Anglophile. I don't know very much. I've always wanted British history books when I was younger to to see their side of the story and stuff. But this is what I kind of equate to things like I guess Thatcherism, maybe where it's like very that very sort of iron-fisted ruling kind of the war will go on even you know we have to be vigilant stay prepared you know buckle down like 
all that kind of talk and propaganda going on. And it's like, yeah, there's not a war, but there, you know, should be a war or could be a war. I don't know. We just have to make sure our boys are ready at all times. Kind of, it's just weird. I don't know. I get a lot of this too, from some of the James Bond movies around this time. Oh, absolutely. You know, where it's just so pro military and propaganda kind of stuff. Thatcher and that whole generation all went to schools like this. James Bond went to school like this, you know? So it's not surprising that that's linked here. And that's why this movie was so groundbreaking in the UK. This broke that. This is one of the movies credited in the late 60s for like being those like inspiring counterculture films. And originally the studio, the studio did not like it. They saw the cut. They're like, I don't know if it was because of the content or because they just thought it wasn't going to be good, but they kind of put it on the back burner. It was limited Mm. release, and they put all their finances that, I guess it was the summer or whatever came out, into the film Barbarella. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, that there you go. Like, I, I feel like this might be twofold. Part of it could be this seemed to seem like a dark secret or something or like an unspoken thing where it's like you don't want to know what's going on inside those schools. And now, like, everybody in the world gets to see the level of intolerance and abuse and all that kind. You know, they get to see the nightmare and stuff. So it's like, oh, shit, like the word's out. We can't really do this anymore the way we're, you know, it's kind of getting canceled in a way, I guess. And then you mentioned, like, it's not what the public wants at all. Like, this is sort of like mod time over there, and they want Barbarella, and they want, like, the poppy stuff like that, I feel like. They want James Bond. Like, no one wants this, uh, like, gritty, realistic, um, independent, autobiographical drama <laughs> about suffering in school and stuff. Like, they should want it, Like, it, but it's just crazy wow. how, how against the sort of times it might have seemed. Well, Mike, like, that's what they thought, and your line of thinking is exactly what they went with. And if it was 1967, that might have 100% been the case. But 1968, Barbarella comes out. And people are starting to feel differently. In the U.S., there's assassinations. In Paris, there's a big student uprising. And Barbarella surprises the studio and ends up flopping. Today, it's a very famous film because mm. I think just like it's silliness and cult classic. But it did really crappy in the theaters. And they were scrambling. And they offered this film if to the theaters if they wanted to swap it out from Barbarella. And a lot of theaters, a lot of theaters opted to. And if ended up becoming a hit, and they were shocked. Wow. They were shocked, but then they quickly pivoted and had an excellent marketing uh, scheme. What they did was they took all the reviews from people who hated the movie. For example, uh, a British ambassador. These are not film critics. These are like, you know, people in high society in England. A British ambassador called it an insult to the nation. Oh, uh, you can't the- get better press. <laughs> <laughs> One of the House of Lords members, Lord John Bradbourne, he read the early draft and he called it the most evil and perverted script I've ever read. Because he probably saw himself in it. He was like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's finished by saying it must never see the light of day. And there was all these negative reviews from these like uppity high society people. And then they had all these positive reviews by... You know, cool critics, people in the know. And they, they put them on a poster side by side. And then the poster at the bottom or the top said, which side are you on or which side oh, do you choose? Oh, wow. Very smart. 
I feel like that's where modern advertising was born, though. Isn't that where, like, a lot of the Mad Men got their ideas from, was, like, looking at British advertising and techniques and things? I don't know if that's true at all. I haven't watched all of Mad Men. But, like, <laughs> I, I just am always very attracted to the graphics of the time of that era in, in London and England and stuff, you know? It's, like, very cool uh, look oh, yeah. pop art and everything. And so, like, that is a great idea. One of the best eras for that, for sure. And, and put yourself in your old... Uh punk high school kid days mike if you theoretically were transported into the uk maybe not in a prep school but just a regular school and you see a poster that says that you're gonna want to see this movie because yeah. you know fuck lord brathburn or whatever <laughs> yeah is. lord fart face and shit right <laughs> right no and you know who else fucking saw this movie stanley kubrick and was like there's my guy right it had a seismic sort of wake after it was uh, released, you know, like like you said, like not just the behind the scenes people, but you know, Malcolm McDowell went on to portray one of the most iconic characters in in uh, literary history. So, yeah, it's it's great. And he's still working today because yes, of he's still film, working pretty much, you know. <laughs> and then I saw here, like I didn't even realize I had seen one of these movies, but it spawned sort of like two pseudo sequels, you know, like oh, oh Luck- we'll talk about okay. that. Mike. Okay, <laughs> okay, because I've heard of, I've seen most of Oh Lucky Man, uh, but oh. uh, Britannia Hospital, I've never heard of before in my life. So <laughs> I did a little deep dive and read on those. <laughs> okay, okay. And then really quickly, I wanted to come back to this. I mentioned that a lot of places list this film as 1969 and that's kind of like an error of today's world um it it 100% came out in 1968 the thing is that cans worked a little differently back then film festivals in general worked a little differently back then because there wasn't this widespread uh availability of foreign films in other countries you kind of showed your film in your country and then you brought it to a festival to see how it would do it was submitted to 1969 cans and won the Palme d'Or. So it goes from like something on the back burner, uh, something that no one wants to be seen to winning that prestigious prize in France. Wow. And today it's considered one of the top British films of all time. It's in a lot of reputable people's top 10 British film lists. And even the British film Institute, which is, you know, their version of the AFI, obviously, listed at number 12, which is incredible. Wow. You know, British film, that's like one of the best in the world, obviously. Yeah, you know what's interesting about this film, too, is like it doesn't feel like um, necessarily a movie at the time. So, I mean, it feels like an American movie made 10 years later by like Dennis Hopper when he's making Easy Rider. Like the way, <laughs> like the way it's shot in it, you know, it has a very docu-style thing going on to it like there's not really a plot it's just sort of like character studies of these children days in the lives of school and things so it's not even a very conventional movie in that sense it's not like they're sitting down and they're getting a MacGuffin to go after or a girl to save or any of that kind of shit going on right so you know like that that's great that the public didn't even know they wanted something like that, or it seems. Um, and then I just have to say, like, the poster on the Wikipedia is brilliant. It's um, two of the kids standing in front of a collage that is shaped like a grenade, you know, a, yeah. hand, a hand grenade. And, it, you know, if you see that on the street and you're in high school, like, you got to go see that movie. <laughs> like, what is this thing? You might Absolutely. think it's Rambo. I mean, it kind of is. It's like Rambo at boarding school. But, like, 
it's so alluring. Like it's such an enticing idea. Malcolm McDowell is amazing, and we you know we already mentioned Kubrick sees him and says, "I want you in Clockwork Orange," and he literally has said that he tried to just play the same character in Clockwork Orange. Like he didn't oh. change much about it. And you can kind of obviously different world, different you know dystopian things happening. Yeah, yeah. You know what though? It's almost as if he was the leader of the bad kids in this movie. You know, if he had all of the power and authority, I could definitely see that. But here he doesn't. He's, you know, he's a year under. That's an interesting thing that you say, Mike, because how many times have we seen around the world and in anything, the rebels, once they are in charge or have a little bit more power, you know, continue to use that oh. force. Oh, yeah. So. Animal Farm, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> comes directly to mind. Or uh, what was the uh, Lord of the Flies? Like, that's great. Those kind of dystopian things yeah, yeah. kind of are all about that. So it checks out. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, you know, he's been in so much. I just want to acknowledge that we'll probably talk about him in a bunch of stuff for this podcast. But he was the principal in Easy A, which was a film that came out, what, like 10 years ago? He's also in Class of 99, which I know we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's a working actor, still doing his thing. And honestly, the rest of this cast, a lot of these people are very accomplished, but mostly in theater. And to keep production costs down, they and, you know, it is, we see this a lot in teen films. They don't need, like, names necessarily. They hired a lot of theater actors, people who were studying theater, people who would go back to theater um, you and I are probably not too familiar with the British theater scene, but some of these people are like legends in the British theater scene. Okay. So I, I found that interesting. A lot of these dudes, I'm not going to say I knew them from stuff, but they felt familiar. Like they, it seems like some of them is like, seemed like such a familiar face or something that I knew this guy from somewhere. I just like could not put my finger on it or anything, but I guess the idea is they just sort of have this iconic British look to them that I forever kind of equated with it. Like there's two guys that look like different aged versions of Austin Powers, you know, like it's that, <laughs> that kind of like three look like uh, they could be Michael York's son. Like it's th- <laughs> like two of them look kind of like Beatles, you know, things like that going on in my mind, trying to t- tell them apart. Yeah, this isn't like the diverse UK we see today, too. They're all like white British men of a certain ilk. Right, right, right. I mean, I know that was a whole information dump, but I'm eager to talk about the movie. Let's really get into it. And the one thing, you know, from watching it and really absorbing it, like I knew nothing about this film, nothing going in. So I was like, where are we going with this? You mentioned it doesn't have like a really coherent uh, plot or a MacGuffin, as you put it, but... What it did for me was created this real slow burn to the ending that I thought was awesome. I think some people from reading assume this is kind of just a not a war movie, but like you said, like a more of like a Rambo film. But how much of the film is that really? 20 minutes of it, if that? No pun intended? <laughs> yeah, no, they really don't get into that until the very end. And even then, I'm not sure how much of it is actually happening. Uh, it's like one of those kinds of situations where the film sort of trips into a bit of surrealism as it goes along and stuff so you're not quite sure the the mental state of a lot of these kids and how reliable they are as narrators and stuff and if i remember being a kid i know i'm embellishing and making a lot of shit up like <laughs> did they really steal a motorcycle like if i didn't i might have told someone i did in their shoot you know what i mean like i could have told that story if i was him coming back that day but at the end it's abrupt I think that's part of it. it. Like It's the exclamation mark on the movie. And I like how we don't know, as you bring up the surrealism, that we don't know really what's 
the surrealist stuff or not. We can take guesses, right? But it's not like everything in black and white is fake, but everything in color is real. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it, it kind of just like lets you. Again, there are some scenes where we can really assume that it is just an exaggeration or an imagination or the highest form of satire, I suppose, of what's going on. And then other times, you're kind of, you know, you don't know. I don't know if you're familiar with the filmmaker Nicholas Rogue, but he's made some movies I really like, like Walkabout, The Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen that. It feels kind of like his sort of films. They're very meditative almost in a way you know what i'm saying like and i think there's a lot of that going on here beyond the chaos like they're they're trying to internalize a lot of the outward experience that's happening and i think that it's cool how you can't tell times what's real or fake because because of that maybe because of something of i don't know but like it just reminded me of his movies in the same sort of way he tries to do those things with his characters for sure i mean it's it's Fascinating and interesting, and it keeps you going along in a movie, again, that we're just seeing what things are like at this boarding school. Yeah, and it makes you rewatch it, too, because, like, you're clued in towards the end that, like, wait a minute, you're like, that's obviously not real. So if that's not real, was the other thing real? And if that wasn't, what was, you know? And so, like, you almost have to backtrack in your mind and say, like, wait a second, I'm not sure what to believe. So, I mean, early in the movie, was there anything that really stuck out at you as we kind of developed to this big ending or even just... I was just interested in... um, It's kind of like step-by-step in a way. Like, it opens with everybody returning to school, right? Uh, And we get, like, these nice title cards every once in a while to sort of, like, reset us. Yeah, like chapters and stuff. So, like, the first thing is, like, everybody's returning to school... And that's great, just seeing, like, a new kid have to keep up with everybody else and everything. And then we see them, you know, in class for the first time, and they love their teacher, and he's so fucking over it and lackadaisical. And, like, (laughs) you know, we see them playing rugby. We see them go to town. Like, I like how it's split up in chapters like that very much. It keeps it sort of easy to talk about and remember in a lot of ways and stuff. I think town is probably my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, town gets insane. And the way uh, that even we set up to that, I think is great because we don't really know who our main character is going to be early on. Mm-hmm. We see some of the uh, the sludge, the freshman kids or whatever, come in, and there's like one who specifically is very new and doesn't know what's going on. The other kids are kind of drilling him and helping him out because of out of fear. You know, they don't hate him. <laughs> out of fear, they don't want to have to take tests again. They don't want to have to be punished. And I love the layers of this school because you know you start out freshman and you're the most shit on and. You said there's a weird dynamic. The older kids, specifically the whips, are talking about these younger kids like they're sexual objects Slaves, at times. basically. They're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they're yeah, supposed they treat- to be like, they're servants, right? Like that's the hazing side of it, but they go more in depth into all the other stuff they make them do as well. Yeah, I mean, we don't see it, but it gets weird. And there's no, a lot it's, of a, it's explicitly implied at one point yeah. where they're trading boys. You know, (laughs) which is like, oh, yeah, yeah, (laughs) not great. But again, these are the bad guys. Um, And, you know, this is a good time, I think, to make a little bit of a segue statement that I probably should have made at the beginning. 
if you view this film in the lens of 2021, like it's not going to be the same, right? Like you really have to put yourself in the late 60s. You have to. This mm. is a over 50 year old movie, right? Like, yeah. Well, I could see someone just reading the cliff notes on this. I'm even dating myself by saying cliff notes, probably. But someone reading just like the cliff notes on this film and being like, <laughs> is this a film that you're just glorifying school shootings? You nailed it. That's exactly the point that I was going to bring up that everybody gravitates towards when they think of this movie. And it's, I'm shocked that we're almost an hour in and we haven't even mentioned it yet, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why I said shame on me. It just <laughs> Well, not even that. No, but, but it's not just about that. But that's exactly the 2020 lens. Like, people are only going to see that kind of stuff in it and be like, oh, you know, he's not a hero or this or that. Or, and they're not going to be able to sympathize with him because of what they imply that he does at the end of this movie, you know? It's so it's such a different context, you know? Like... You're right. I think they do a great job, though, of putting you there. Exactly. I'm there, you know, and most of the time, like, while I love this movie, it's kind of a bummer to be there, you know? It's kind (laughs) of a bummer, but, like, they make you feel like you're definitely there, and that's sort of how, like, I'm I'm amazed how well I can kind of relate to Mick and his friends in this movie. And it's about this slow burn. We're slowly learning the layers of this society that exists at the school and we're slowly learning and they're showing us who we should hate and they're filling us with this revolutionary attitude and again i'll say it for maybe the second or third time this movie is over 50 years old we don't read shakespeare that i know is older than that but we don't put it on our views today right like right. we don't read things from a hundred years ago and put it on our views today 50 yeah. years ago is very very different again the pre- and post-Columbine world, especially for high school films and just high school art or high school in general, is very, very different. We have to look at it in context. This is a very much a time of war. This is the Cold War. This is post-World War II. Yeah, you got to understand, too, they got the shit kicked out of them, you know? Like, they did, right? Like, World War II was rough. Absolutely. This is war-torn Europe. And we're starting to get the counterculture to the militarization that really, again, did not stop since World War II. And a lot of this is satire. A lot of this is against that. And this would, like, this film and the art of this era would influence a generation of young people. And it had nothing to do with the school shootings of today. Are there some unifying things like bullying? Of course. You know, this is a big bullying film. Yeah. It's so institutionalized back then that it's not really called bullying. That's just how it goes there. Yeah. So actually, you know, uh, in a couple weeks, I'm not sure when, but I'm recording uh, with my friend Dan Kim, a Gus Van Zandt film, Elephant, which is a school shooting film. Yes. Very different than this, though, you know, and I don't want to like to loop that those kind of things together. Maybe we'll compare them. I'm not sure. Or we talked about, we need to talk about Kevin, which Kevin is distinctly the villain. And the -hmm. the slow burn in that is to show him as the villain. This is completely different. And like you said, we don't know if the ending is actually the ending of, like, we don't know if it's really taking place or existing. Yeah. So that's why I love talking about these early scenes and not really scenes, just the characters we learn about because we see the. the older kids, the whips, right? And the shit just rolls down the hill from them because <laughs> they're hard they're hard against the juniors, if you will, which, you know, 
uh, Malcolm McDowell's character is a part of. They're hard against everyone, but hardest against those new kids. And it's juxtaposed by the administration. They're hard asses, but they probably went to these schools, and they kind of turn a blind eye and allow it. And then they go, it goes all the way up to the headmaster, who's completely oblivious. Yes. And <laughs> he just talks in hyperbole and stuff. You know? Yeah. No, the, the guy running this place has no clue. The people who are supposed to be in charge of the students put the students in charge of the students and just cross their fingers. There's that one scene when, you know, the old dude's having dinner with the four older seniors. And... He's just like, all right, I guess you guys have complete and total power to do whatever the fuck you want. And they're like, yeah, the lower <laughs> classes like really need some beatings. And he's like, all right, I guess so. Uh, like that. Yeah, the uh, inmates are running the asylum, right? Like that's sort of the saying going on here. And you feel like it's been like that for hundreds of years. Yeah, because you look at how subservient and implicit the people, the adults actually are, and the kids walk all over them. They're not in any sort of authoritative state here. They're not in charge the way they think they're in charge, you know? Like, sure, they're setting the curriculum, but they're not the ones administering the punishments. Like, they're the kids are doing it to each other. And you could picture, like, some uppity British father who went to this school sending his son here, knowing that's what he's going to go through, but he's like, that made me a man. So right. this is going to make him a man. <laughs> yeah. And that's just, that's what it was thought of, which is crazy, but... It's wild. And I still come back to conditioning. Like, that's why a lot of this feels bad is because it's just a cycle. It's just a culture of this conditioning that went on sort of, you know, unwatched or like self, sort of like self-watched, right? Like, who's watching the Watchmen at this point? Like, nobody is watching what's going on. And like, they're pumping out these like horrible kids and stuff. Uh, and they're taking like purity and they're just destroying it and everything and so like it's very it's very different than stuff today I think stuff today might even be worse in school on some levels you know not boarding schools necessarily but like schools in America are definitely out of control is the uh but but, like the gun is on the wall in the first scene of this movie like there's no way like I feel this could really end any other way like they're asking not asking for it but like the movie is definitely leading there in some way like this is you know part of the curriculum the guns are on campus um they are you know taught and learned how to use them they're fencing like they're trained in military tactics and things like that like it is way more sort of plausible for mick to have this fantasy at the end of the movie you know than not i feel and that's the other thing you said like this we're not sure if it actually happens like i think they play it safe and wise that way that it's um more of like his mental state you know like this is what he wishes to happen or something like that and that separates it from the stuff i feel like actually happens in real life you know and this is not a comment on something that happened in the 2000s this is something that was going on for generations before in a whole other country so there's a lot of different stuff going on but this is why we love movies you know so like we could have these other experiences we weren't even alive to have a movie is sounds so corny, and I, I know I sound like your high school films teacher, but hey, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. But movies are right like time capsules for the era that they were made, even if they're a period piece. Like they don't make a movie like The Favorite in the '60s, you know, even <laughs> yeah. though it's a period piece for way before that. So this is a great lens to see what in a particular mm. country for a particular subset of people how they were feeling and 
what yeah. they w- were doing. Yeah, you could even argue that the favorite is more about the modern day, right? Like, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's the same as if this was to take place in the future, and it came out, and like Planet of the Apes is about the '60s, not about the future. You know what I mean? But it takes mm-hmm. place there. Like, it's more about when it's made as opposed to like when it's set for me. And I love talking about these older movies, and you and I love these movies, but. We do so much in the 80s and 90s on this show that it's nice to go back to the 60s. I love going back to the 60s. I love going back to the 70s. And that's why I'm loving watching movies of 2020 and 2021 as well, because, yeah, you know, I'm stuck doing this film project. So it's fun. (laughs) It's fun to see the outliers. And this definitely feels like an outlier from a John Hughes film, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or, or, uh, the things that are coming out today so it's great to leave the country you know and like experience the other uh, other other ways of life as well too i'd like to go to other countries and other times as well like i don't know if we could get our hands on some you know does anyone out there know about like the dope fucking korean high school movies right like there's a lot of great films coming out of that country i know there's a bunch of japanese ones i'm sure i could find one or two for us to watch or something. We still got to watch House or Houseu, which is the high school horror movie. <laughs> yeah, there's that. There's one that Joey wants to be on from Asia. I, f- I think it's a t- uh, from Thailand. I have to double check that one, though. Uh, we've covered Battle Royale here with your co-host on The Monsters That Made Us, Dan Cologne. I love getting out of the country. So many high school films are American films. And I've talked to people from outside the country, too, and they say still, even in their countries, the majority of teen films are are American high school films. Mm. So this is kind of an American genre. So it's nice to see the stuff that's not. And this is one yeah. of them. Yeah, because like, do it like they did with the Western. Like America created the Western, but like other countries have definitely pumped out some amazing Westerns and things. So let's see what you got. And one thing that I just do love about this movie is from the ambiguity of who's the hero at the beginning, they're slowly creating uh, Mick and his friends as the heroes here because of the way they're just rebelling, the slowly putting all those pictures on the wall. Even when Mick shows up, though, he's like a mysterious character, but he's cool because he has a mustache that he shaves off. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that for so long, like why that's in the movie and everything. But like he arrives at school with a with like a scarf around his face and a big hat, and someone even calls him Guy Fox, right? Um, and he's unpacking yeah. upstairs in like a different dorm where he's not supposed to be, you find out. And so he was just like taking a piss for a minute out of like the older kids and the younger kids and then he runs down into his actual dorm room where he has like privacy and a roommate um and he's got a mustache and i was like why is he immediately shaving that mustache and you gotta believe like he grew that over the break because he takes so much shit at school for not being Mm -hmm. like in the older crowd or of the seniors and things like that and he can't keep that like it's gotta go so he was holding on to it for as long as possible because if the fucking seniors saw him with that mustache right like they would whip the shit out of him or they would hold him down and shave it off themselves he would get punished socially for it not like that he deserved it but that's just what happens (laughs) absolutely and i love that you said that he waited for the absolute last minute to just give up that freedom that he probably has to give up every mm. summer coming back to this school. And that was a damn good mustache he grew, right? A great mustache. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know who I was thinking would like this movie if he hasn't seen it already? I'm sure he has. But uh, someone we've podcasted with, Galen Howard. Oh, right? totally. It feels, yeah. It feels really up Galen's alley. And 
he's got a great mustache too. So that's right. Win-win. That's right. I was thinking of him. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get back at my western and i'm like thinking now i know a couple actors like i'm just gonna write them into this thing so he's in it charlie's in it like (laughs) (laughs) maybe it'll help me finish this thing you know (laughs) it's got to uh you got to get all the high school slumber party faithful kate hudson's got to be in it (laughs) well she could be on set at least as like the internet reporter (laughs) i gotta see who else john harden you gotta put john oh yeah we gotta get john in there somewhere for sure but you mentioned it Mike, they're teasing that you can't go to town, and we know we're going to go to town because that's how it goes. <laughs> it, it reminds me of summer camp movies too, right? Like, Oh, yeah. When you escape the reservation, if you will, and go to town, it's something great or fun always happens. So when they, I guess they do like a little escape here, our, our heroes, our juniors, if you will, a mixed crew, the rebels, the crusaders, I guess, or what we're supposed to call them, and... First cool-ass thing they do is steal that motorcycle, which, again, we don't know if that's real or not, (laughs) but that was awesome, because those are those cool... I'm not a motorcycle guy. I don't have a motorcycle. I've never driven a motorcycle solo, but if I I were to have a motorcycle, it would be one of those cool late-60s-looking motorcycles. Yeah, yeah, those things are gorgeous, and I think this is when I was like, these guys look like they're in the Beatles. They definitely (laughs) have, like, that style going on here, but... Yeah, this is such a funny little, like, moment where they just sort of wander into the dealership and kind of like, hey, how's it going? And just nonchalantly, like, sits on a bike and is just like, just starts it up, starts <laughs> riding it around the fucking dealership and into the garage and his buddy jumps on and they just fucking take off into the countryside. I was like, oh, my God, these fucking droogs. These guys are like, they've got some balls. But then it's like, well, you know, it's like 1968, like... Once they're out of there, they're home, they're scot free, like they're home, right? There's no way anyone's gonna catch them. So I was like, wow, how great to be free like that. That's why I'm pretty sure the bikes wouldn't like just be able to start like that. But who knows? Oh yeah, no, I, <laughs> I don't think they actually stole the motorcycle. But like, I think you know, again, like I said earlier, like they came back and they told the story about they went to town, they stole a motorcycle, they got laid, you know, like. <laughs> so they visit uh, a coffee house and meet the coffee house girl. Do you think this actually happened? I'm not too sure. <laughs> I think I think a, a, a moment of this happened. Like I definitely think like all they did was they went to town and they got a bite to eat, right? And they saw this like good-looking girl working the counter at the coffee place, but they didn't like talk to her. He didn't try and kiss her. They didn't make out on the floor and dance their brains. Out. None, you know. Like I don't. I thought it was happening at the time because I was like this. Why not? Like, this could be going on. And then at the end, when he hallucinates the girl, you know, it's so obvious that she's hallucination at the end of the movie. So I was like, okay, then how much of what happened is reliable? Exactly, exactly. Because at the end, and she's great, by the way, but at the end, she just sort of appears, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, his buddy's like looking at the stars through a telescope and he looks through a window with it and sees her across the street and it's like there's not even a building anywhere near (laughs) like it's entirely in his head so christine noonan played the girl and uh malcolm mcdowell has actually admitted that he when he saw her he had a huge crush on her and convinced the director to uh expand their scenes a little bit it kind of sounds shitty now but like you know that's why the sex scene not why the sex scene was added but he suggested it he didn't say because i like her i don't want to see her naked but he was like oh you know we have good chemistry let's uh let's go further with this and the director was like okay go on 
Look at me. I'll kill you. Look at my eyes. Sometimes I stand in front of the mirror and my eyes get bigger and bigger. And I'm like a tiger. I like tigers. And that scene, like, when they are, you know, kind of making out and dancing and then they get naked, but they're tigers or whatever, was one of the most talked about scenes, apparently, of its era. Because, like, uh, you know, well, my eyes get wider and wider. I'm a tiger. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then they start, like, growling at each other and, and, <laughs> and clawing and stuff. I love that, though. Like, that now, in retrospect, like, is totally in his head, like, that they became these purely sexual animals and can only communicate in like cavemen or something like you know Uh, that feels like his instincts for sure for sure like i said that was a really talked about scene in the film today it doesn't seem as risque but at the time like oh my god these two Young people yeah. are pretending to be tigers and rolling on the floor naked. It's still weird today. You oh, know what I mean? Weird. Like, it's, it's still weird. strange to, like, imply bestiality, I guess. It's like, what the thing going on? Like, well, basic... They're both tigers, so it's not bestiality. It's more like okay. furry stuff. <laughs> yes. Role, we'll say role play. We'll be nice. They, there we go. Yeah, yeah, animal, animal role, role play. play. Okay. <laughs> sure. You know, they're going to pretend they're tigers and fuck like bunnies, I guess. But we'll see. <laughs> So, so interesting. And, you know, they're not, it's all boys school, so it's understandable, but there's not a lot of women in the film. She's one of them. Um, oh, the, the other, other one, one is like, I think, is that a teacher's wife that lives on campus? And there's one shot where she's like sitting in the cafeteria with them. And they're kind of like, she's not saying anything. She's got like the weirdest blank stare on her face. And they're kind of like casually asking her you know, pretty polite questions and things like that. But like, does this go on every fucking day? We're only seeing it once, but this happens every day, maybe? Yeah, yeah, I think she's a wife. She's called Mrs. Kemp. She's either a wife or one of the professors or married to a professor, and she's also a professor. Like, I'm not 100% sure. But I took that as that whole thing of, like, office hot or, uh, as my wife says, hospital hot. Like, uh, when you're, like, the opposite gender of what's usually in that environment, you get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Not all, po- not all positive, but I definitely saw her scenes as again Malcolm's visions, if you will, or that or that surrealist thing that was happening okay. here. Because yeah. if she's the only woman at this school, or one of the only women that we see, because there's that like lunch lady too, who has right. a weird, weird grin on her face. <laughs> Yeah, but, very, very. She looked like she's from Hogwarts or something. There's a very yeah. Harry Potter sort of vibe going on in some of this. Well, I, ironically, you know, quick side note, like I feel like the kids today. Wow, I sound so old, but the kids today know the British boarding school system mostly from Harry Potter and Hogwarts. Like, oh, this is fun, you know. <laughs> yeah, this is a whole different type of sorting hat. If you catch my dress. <laughs> Absolutely. So this teacher, or whoever she is, Mrs. Kemp, there's that later scene where she's just walking around naked while everyone's outside. Yeah. I just felt like it was definitely, you know, on the surrealist, maybe vision Mm -hmm. side of things, because you can imagine that a lot of these kids, 
as weird as it sounds, but they're all hormoned up, are probably fantasizing about her, even though she's just like some professor's yeah. wife. You know, yeah. I'm not downplaying yeah. her. No, but, you know what I mean. Like, no, she's I think there. the sexuality in this film is extremely complex. Like, I think that might also be a reason why there's a lot of this sort of like homosexuality going on here. Like, I don't know that these guys are necessarily gay, but it's more of like. A power, okay, it's very much a power thing going on very with the much, younger yeah. classmen, but it is also like there are no women. You know, there is a very much kind of like a jail feel going on with this movie where they're in prison to learn. Or, you know, it, it's like so bizarre. It, like they could go and come and go as they please, and like it's not like they're locked in cages like prison or anything, but there's very much that sort of like socially it feels like that you know it For felt sure. like, I mean, felt like i was watching five yeah it felt like i was watching oz at times it was weird <laughs> you're absolutely right though and i think a lot of the gay undertones do come from that the power dynamics yes but also you know there are no real women in this environment and Look, I'm sure some of the kids are actually gay. I'm not saying gay doesn't exist. Please do not say yeah, that. Yeah, no, but. and I think there is an actual one amongst the four of those older boys, and I don't think that he finds any of it amusing at the least, you know? Like, he doesn't come out and say that he's gay, but, like, there's he, the way that he acts is it bothers him very much when they start sort of uh, joking about it, right? Like, and... I don't You're know. About, like, I, the main, the main yeah, guy. the guy with like the scar on his lip and the glasses, right? Like the blonde guy. By the way, I I didn't remember his name, so I, I forgot who played him. The dude did a great job. Like he, yeah. he look, he's like that civil kind of evil. You know, he could be a he's a, a bad guy. Yeah, Malfoy. He looks just that like was, him, his dad or something. I was gonna say he has a little bit more control than a Malfoy, but we see Malfoy so young, so he probably was like yeah. that. But I think this guy could be a bad, he could have been a bad guy in an action movie if they existed at that time. Oh right, he looks like he's one of Hans Gruber's brothers or something like that for <laughs> sure. But but then later in the movie, like much more towards the end, you see like a very what seems like a very two two way. There's a there's definitely like a relationship going on between an older boy and a younger boy, and they're not really hiding it. The movie's not hiding it. You know, it's like there's laying in bed together, shirtless, like they're, they, they've they clearly just like been together and all this stuff like that, too. So like it's treated almost in every way. Right. Like they don't yeah. really exclude any of the uh, possibility. Like they say, like, look, like this is actually working, but this isn't working, you know, but like it's all happening is the point. And I, I saw some criticisms of that, but that were very like 2020 lens wise. The age difference between those boys is supposed to be, again, like between a junior and a freshman. Yeah, it's There's like plenty what, five of juniors years? at my, f- Five at most. But remember, that, right? that kid is with Malcolm's team, so he's a junior. Right. So, but, like, yeah, I've known, like, freshmen who dated seniors. Like, get out of town. Yeah. Yeah, and it, actually, they have a very nice relationship. That older – we say older, but, again, they're not that much older. The guy who's on Team, team Mick, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Crusader, he's protecting that kid because that kid's been made a slave yeah. to – to the freaking, you know, glasses like the, guy. Yeah, right. So He, he was they, the one traded. <laughs> yeah, so they have a real, it looks to be like a really kind of sweet relationship. And for 1968, for that to happen, it's insane. It's crazy. Yeah, I think a lot of that might even just get glossed over, uh, A, because the viewers just don't want to see it. That scene goes by so quick, it just may not register. Uh, and then you're kind of like on to something else that you do sort of... Um, like engage with a little better and stuff so like again for repeat viewings these things like okay this is my second full-time watching it but like i've seen parts and bits and things but and read about it and stuff so like 
those other stuff, that other stuff is definitely sinking in. For sure. So in terms of other scenes I wrote down that I wanted to talk about, there's that discipline scene, if you will, where yes. the, wh- the whips decide to take it out on you know, the Crusaders for a lot of reasons like, oh, you know, your overall attitude and stuff. Yeah, they're extremely antisocial, too. Like, they just, the three of them just hang out together, get drunk together, bullshit together. Like, they're they punks. are not. They, can, they can't look like punks because they're, they're mm-hmm. not allowed to dress like it. But if this was uh, the high school that you and I went to, they'd be punks. They'd be the punk kids. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not the school to sort of like be allowed to be private. Like, there's no privacy at this private school. Okay. No. <laughs> and like, if you get some, it's a privilege and people kind of hate you for it. You know, there's a lot of uh, scenes we, we get before this and after this where there's clearly tension between the whips and the Crusaders. Uh, there's that fencing scene mm-hmm. that gets really rough. You know, there's a lot of cool visual moments. But to call them even scenes would be a little much. You know, they're not like playing out like vignettes here. They're just kind yeah, of happening. Just, <laughs> it's like montage. Like the whole movie is almost a, is just in montage in a lot of ways, you know, where we're just jumping and... And cutting, and there's not a lot of establishing. I mean, there, I think that's why those chapters are so great because it sort of resets you and like gives you a minute to like, you know what I'm saying? Be like, all right, now we're into like another montage or something. You know, like it's a nice sort of break the way it breaks it up and everything. Yeah, and when they and when they um when the whips decide to punish the crusaders big, I felt like that was real because I felt like those maybe not everything that was going on, but I felt like. If you're in charge of a school like that as seniors and you have people who are behaving that way, you want to freaking do something to them. So I guess they bring them one by one to the gymnasium and whip, literally whip them, you know? I, again, I, I, think don't, they, I, don't know. I think it's like caning, you know? Because oh, it's, it's not like. Okay. It, yeah, it didn't look like Indiana Jones's whip. It True. looked it like, wasn't a, like, whoosh, like it was more like, like a yeah. switch, I guess. Yeah, a yeah, switch is a good way to put it. Apparently that scene was completely ad-libbed in terms of the dialogue and what's said there. And he's just saying, like, you know, move to this equipment, bend over. And, oh, my God. Mick is so cool in that scene. Again, I mean cool, like calm, cool, collected, because he's getting just whipped in the ass, you know. (laughs) And he just says thank you, kind of walks away. It's one of those just defiant moments. And whether that was the true punishment or not, you know, in like the re- if this was a reality-based movie, something happened where he got punished from them, and he's walking out of there yeah. with his with his buddies, and like we're taking revenge on everything here. Everyone's been in that situation where someone gives you shit, and you're just like, I want to destroy 
everything. Yeah, yeah. No, he's going to burn the world after this. You know, it was the tipping point. Um, This, I almost think, like, he isn't telling the whole truth, but, like, in the other way, like, I think he's leaving stuff out. Like, it was probably worse oh. than worse. I think it's worse, and he might be embarrassed about it, you know? And, like, he, he, we see him put on that fucking stiff upper lip and just walk out of there, and it's... He wins the scene, you know? Like, he gets... He gets switched, but he wins the scene. You know, when he walks out of that room, he is sort of superior, I feel. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't take anything away from him anymore at this point. Like, everything is lost. And the, the reason I think that is real, too, is we see them cut to the rest of the school hearing it. Okay, and it gets goes on and on and we keep panning. And some of the kids are like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this is not right. You know, like they do a good job of sort of justifying I can't say his actions because we don't know if they actually happened, but his state of mind, right? Okay, like I can understand why he would be thinking the way he does, especially after this. I mean, he already was thinking that way, but he was so playful and he didn't want to be bad. And like now it just feels like you forced my hand, you know, like you're making me sort of one up you uh, just to show you who's boss. And you could have left well enough alone. You know, they weren't bothering anybody. They weren't going around looking for trouble. You know, Trouble came to them and said, like, we're going to start some shit with you. And I almost got, like, the sense that those older boys are, have, are a little jealous of Travis. Like, he should be part of their crew, but he doesn't want to be, was sort of like a weird, like, mm-hmm. vibe I was getting from them, where they're just, like, just come on and, like, be part of our crew and, like, this could all end. It's almost like a, a line I could have heard in this movie at some point and stuff. But instead, he's just like, you guys suck. Like, why would I want to be friends with you people? Like, I've got my own crew. So, like, yeah, I think, like, you know, if he makes it to next year, I don't think, I don't know. It's hard to say whether he's going to go full on Alex or if he's going to learn and be like, I can't let people keep getting treated the way I was treated here. You know, like, something has to change some way. And, like, the film makes a very drastic point about that. For sure. The way that they progress that is subtle, but so, you know, it ends up not being subtle, but subtle, but so awesome. Like the first thing they get apparently is like they find live bullets or they somehow acquire live bullets. So when they do that whole uh, drill thing, first, I love when they're uh, out there, like they're on kind of their own unit out there, which is awesome. You know, they're not in formation. And, like, the fake grenade kills them. But they knew it was going to do that. Then they just post up and shoot the coffee tin and stuff and start just shooting around. Not killing people, but just no, but mischief. No, but what would you call that? Friendly fire? Like, what are they? Warning shots? I'm not sure. Yeah, warning but shots, I would yeah, say. Yeah. yeah, like, they're aiming for the trucks and the coffee pots and the tea kettle and everything like that. They're just trying to scare everybody. Yeah, I, I laughed at the scene when they have punishment from the headmaster and such. Oh, well, (laughs) the priest comes up and is like, put down those guns. And uh, Malcolm McDowell just points a gun directly at his face and shoots it. And it turns out to be a blank. And he's cowering. The the priest is like cowering on the ground. He's like, no, no. And (laughs) he just shoots him again with another blank. Like, it's not going to do anything but make him piss his pants. But like, that's such a great, that's, I'm not going to say it's a great move, but like, that's a fucking power move, you know, like, and that priest is a pedophile too. Like you see, there's so many revealing shots Oof. throughout the movie where he's like licking his lips at little boys and stuff. Where it's just like Oof. he deserves it. But like in today's world, in any environment, if you pull that shit, you're getting expelled. You're probably going to prison no matter <laughs> oh, what. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and that fucking 
adult is like going to get, you know, a lot of money and relax the rest <laughs> of his life. It's like, <laughs> but instead uh the headmaster, and again, who knows? He could have been exaggerating in, you know, to the viewer what he actually did because Really, they're that great of marksmen to hit that, like, perfectly, you know? I know. Uh, I was thinking that, too. It's hilarious. It's like, why didn't you just compete? You know you could do it. You just don't want to do it. Kind of <laughs> If you just showed the initiative, like, you would be winning. <laughs> who knows? Like I said, this punishment scene with the headmaster, who I love because he's so, he's so, like, uh, naive, you know? Not to what's going on, but he's like... He thinks he's hip, right? He's like, oh, I get it. I know that. And we'll see you later. Like, that really backfire. But he's like, oh, I know what you're you're expressing yourself. That's not a bad thing that you're expressing yourself, you know? But we have to punish you a little. So I want you to do two things. One, apologize to the priest guy. And they just shake his hand. And two, just clean out, clean out the storage room. Yeah, clean out the crawl space where there happens to be all these old World War munitions like just yours for the taking. And by the way, your imaginary girlfriend can help because she's yeah. just going to show up. Literally just show up. She doesn't walk in and say, hi, remember me? No, she just shows up. So when they're doing this, there's like that stuffed alligator they're burning. It's really cool visually. Yeah, yeah. I thought of them cleaning out that crawl space and like all of that. I don't know. It just seems like some of that stuff might have been valuable and you might have wanted to like just clean and not burn everything that was going, you know? When they say clean out the crawl space, that's what I thought they were just going to like rearrange and dust it, but they're literally yeah. taking everything out and throwing it away. I was thinking of those like History Channel shows like Pawn Stars or American Pickers, you know, like so much of this stuff was probably like have some value to today or even then, but nope, yeah. just burn it all. It's like, oh, this uh, 40-year-old newspaper? Fuck it. Like, it just talks about the Blitz. Like, screw that. <laughs> but yeah, when they discover this cachet, you know it's on. And it has everything, which is silly that they would keep that there. But you never know. You know, you never know. It was a well, war environment. that's the thing, too, where it's like, you know, part of this obviously is imaginary. The girl is not there. Like, I don't care what anybody says, you know, but she's there. So, like, I wonder if it's supposed to represent just like him when he's like going over the edge or something. I don't know, because these munitions, I think, are actually there. But I don't think that they actually do what they do with them. You know what I mean? Like, but they, it makes sense that they would be there. So, like, I don't think that part's made up. Yeah, you know, because there is some logic to them being there, right? They're drilling for a reason. Like I said, just in case there's like an invasion from Nazis. Maybe that's the... Because they're not going to shoot blanks at the Nazis, right? Maybe they're in that secret place. So when some... I, I know not Nazis in 1968. This is from when they the drilling mattered. But if there was some kind of invasion, they probably, you know, the headmaster would unlock that closet or... Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's not like they put those munitions there over the summer. Like, those things have been sitting there for a mm -hmm. really long time. So you got to imagine, like, yeah, like, this school could was, like, probably a fortress during the war, you know? And, like, they're definitely, I feel like, defending it or whatever, right? Like, it's out in the countryside. It's, it's, it's the size of a castle, you know? Like, you definitely want that position. Uh, so, like, that's why I feel like it makes sense that these are all, like, left over from a war or something. For sure. We didn't talk about a happening they keep teasing, which may be the one small like semblance of uh, MacGuffin or, or something similar to it, right? Would be the Founders, Founders Day, that their parents are going to come. It's like a big to-do. There's some general who's coming to speak 
Oh, yeah, yeah. The big climax, yeah. The big climax. And Founder's Day is, well, we don't really know, but, like, we assume it's when they're going to essentially do their assault. And uh, I don't know if it's, like, a smoke grenade or something, but it is Founder's Day. And this general is spewing some bullshit, you know, about, like, we are preparing people for the future. And it's just, like, all bullshit. And they start to get, like, smoked out of that venue and then boom. Like, the way we're describing it sounds really bad. But at this point, I mean, I'm sure you're with me that this is probably mostly a fantasy at this point. Yeah, like I'm sure the founding day is going on, but um, the way that the speeches are happening and the way everyone looks and stuff, like it's very surrealistic. It's more on that edge. Like I was thinking Louis Brunel by this point and that kind of stuff. Because, like, he's making a speech, but it's all pompous and pompous. It's all pomp and circumstance and theatrics. And there's, like, a, a guy dressed up like fucking King Arthur's knight. Yeah. You know, like, there's all the different sort of through the... I think there's even a beef eater there or something like that. Like, there's all this weird, like, history colliding kind of shit. And then, like, you have all the adults. It's like, where'd all the kids go? You only see adults all of a sudden. Like, it's founding day, but, like, only the adults are in the audience and everything. Yeah, and then they start burning the church i think is what smokes them out i guess it's like like you're Uh, gonna that's kind of a statement (laughs) it's like let's set the church on fire and then and then there's the big rebellious moment of just uh it's a massacre opening fire on everyone coming out of the church and these are our heroes so just saying it sounds weird but what this movie has done so well like we'll say it again is that it's built us to this point where we're rooting for them, as weird as it sounds, you know? You know who these guys feel like? It feels like... It, this is going to sound really fucking dumb, but these are the days we live in. But, like, it feels like Star Wars. Like, it feels <laughs> like the rebels against the Empire, right? It feels like Malcolm McDowell was, like, raised by the Empire, and finally the switch fucking flipped, and now he's Finn, and he's shooting down, like, the uh, Imperial General to escape the uh, institution or something. You know, like, that's the that's more of, like, the vibe I'm getting. Like, it doesn't come across for some reason as, like, school vibe. Like, I don't know why a school shooting never really popped into my head, like, on the level, like, you know, of today's interpretations and things like that, because it just felt more like a war. The whole movie just felt like war. And, like, they're just waiting for the battle. Like, they're in the fucking barracks, the whole movie, and then the war happens. And, you know, you have to pick a side, I guess. And, like, I don't think that they're on the wrong side, but even, you know, I I know how weird and strange and, like, fucked up that might sound or whatever, but, like, yeah, it just feels like the rebels beating the empire for some reason i laughed when you first said star wars but i think you make an awesome point if this was like you said just finn or or any stormtrooper that we saw and we're conditioned to a not like stormtroopers and b just not really value their lives you know yes Um, (laughs) so if we saw a stormtrooper getting treated like crap even in like something like the mandalorian right uh bill burr's character like yeah yeah look what he did he did the same thing yeah (laughs) i know they're older and and he popped some guy right in the fucking right in his dome he's just boom and it's very much that instead so yes when you compare it to actual school shootings terrible but you're watching this movie and you're not thinking that you're more thinking these guys are rebelling against a very corrupt system that you know, the terrible people. And you're right, they're not really shooting kids until the kids that are coming after them are the ones who are militarized and deciding to shoot them. 
You know, they're shooting. Yeah, the, the, par- the, the actual who put them there. The teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those kids are depicted as like real life stormtroopers, like like the Nazi kind, like the mm-hmm. the one like derived from that. When they come out, all in their gear and in their uniforms and stuff, like it is very much like a negative presence i guarantee that most people watching this movie will feel the same way we're feeling if you're watching it and you're following along and you're learning to hate this school that these guys are heroes and honestly it probably probably didn't really happen let's be honest (laughs) you know no yeah no you know what absolutely didn't happen is the headmaster coming out pleading with them being like boys boys and then him just getting again like Right in his mug, just of shot course. right in the face. Like, there's no way. Boys, boys, I understand you. Listen to reason and trust me. Trust me. Like I'm even surprised like I'm even surprised we saw that on screen to be honest with you, but but that's the thing, like remember who shoots him? Remember who shoots him? The was it the girl? The girl and he goes, Oh, I understand you boys. He looks at her, who's a girl, boom, shot in the head. Amazing. Okay, so like when I grew up, most of the posters at the store looked like this poster except it was like Sylvester Stallone right or Chuck Norris or something like that and I really feel that vibe sort of creeping in here a little bit I don't think it's intentional I just think like that's just a byproduct of what I've been exposed to and things like that but it is kind of interesting how the hero will pose on the poster for a while with a gun right and like a lot of anti-heroes are gonna pop up and a lot of just like heroic gun violence and shit like that and you know, even Star Wars is going to come in like 10 years or something like that. And we'll, we'll get the fantasy version of all this. And <laughs> so I don't know. There's just something interesting to be said about it being sort of a, a very popular movie for multiple reasons. You know, one of which might be that, uh, at least like for my understanding of it. I think the only thing I'll say that might be playing devil's advocate here would be like a gun, I mean, we're not going to get into gun control debate here. That's over here, but but like a gun, if it's in the wrong hands, it could be deadly, right? Like this movie, if the wrong teenager watches it, they might be able to get ideas, right? Like this isn't, I don't know, I don't know, right? Like yeah, I, you know what's good about this though that it has going for it too. I think is that it's not an American movie. Um, true, I true. Think that if this took place, like if this was School Ties. And school ties ended like this, and Brendan Fraser lit up Matt Damon at the end of the movie or Shit. something. Like, no, okay, <laughs> like because that's supposed to take place in America at like roughly the exact same time, you know, um, very different. That's a really good point. Stuff going on there, but maybe we could do like a little sequel to this episode with that movie one day. I don't know, but like I think it really helps. Like I've been talking about this lately, just things that help you know, the medicine, like the sugar on the medicine helping it go down is that it's not an American movie. It does not take place in an American school system. These are not American children raised with American values. Gun, These, yeah, gun culture today, even in the UK, is way different than gun culture in the United States. So yes, yeah. You and I are obviously not high school age. We're not bullied kids. We're not in an environment where this film could be dangerous. So we can discuss this film as an art form. 
I doubt they would show this film in schools. I'll just put it that way. Oh, no. I mean, not in a high school, but like how no, many high school? Not in high school. You might be able to screen it. You could probably screen this in college, though. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, sh- it but should like, be screened this, in college. It's great. It's so funny you say this shouldn't be filmed in high school. You know how hard we begged our psychology teacher to show us Clockwork Orange in high school? Ooh, ooh. Uh, I even remember offering... And I don't know if I was even able to do this. I was like, I will edit all of the bad stuff, like, out of, like <laughs> all of the nudity and stuff. Like, I will cut it out somehow if we could watch it in class. And she would just not budge. But I totally get it. I get you know, her, I get you know what, though? Like, you bring up a really great point. They let you read Clockwork Orange in school. Yeah. <laughs> they let you read stuff like this. They would let you read the If book in school. So, I, you know what? I really don't know. Where I land on this, where I fall on this, I'm not in high school. I'll be mm-hmm. curious, some educators of today, to give me their opinion. All I know is that yeah. I'm in my 30s, and this is the first time I watched this film, and I was able to realize context that it is a foreign film to us here in the United States, that it is in the late 60s, its cultural impact, what it was trying to say about this institutional system, and the surrealist elements of it. And I can remove myself from this being, we need to talk about Kevin or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we did watch Lord of the Flies in class, and I was like, you're going to show us this? Like, this is way worse. Maybe not than Clockwork, but, like, there's (laughs) there's other movies... (laughs) That I was like, we would definitely be allowed to watch before this. Like, even the like '90s or '80s or '90s version of the Lord of the Flies is brutal. There's a movie that I watched for my end of 2020 project called Chemical Hearts, and it was okay. a Amazon movie. We might cover it at some point. Who knows? But the lead in it, she had recently suffered a loss, and she makes a really great point that. The point was, I mean, the movie I liked, but the point was, frankly, better than the movie. The point was one of the best points I ever heard. It was something along the lines of, look at all the books they're having us read. Romeo and Juliet, and the list went on. They're all about death and teen suicide and all that. Like, that's what the teenage experience can be boiled down to. A lot of confusion, a lot of processing, right? But they've been teaching this stuff. Again, we'll use the example of Romeo and Juliet, right? Two yep. teens who fall in love and kill themselves. <laughs> and they, they never stop teaching us that just because that happens and teen suicide is a really, really, really serious yeah, thing. And they're having underage sex. I mean, come on. So maybe, maybe I don't know, with the proper educators and the proper lens, this isn't as harmful? I don't know. It's certainly up for debate. Well, that's the point is like you have to have like it's a film class. Like you don't just screen it at a, at a high school and say like, here you go. <laughs> you know, come to tonight's screening. You know, uh, five bucks. We're going to show If and Transformers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So like, come you know, to the this spring is, dance. We're screening If. Yeah, no, this is like a, a film for cl- for a film class. Like it wouldn't, it couldn't be taught. in Like I don't think, like I didn't have the aptitude to understand understand it in high school the way I think it's, you know, mostly intended. Uh, I think there's levels to this. I think, you know, you don't have to, I think you could be in high school and you should be in high school and watch this movie to, you know, 
a certain degree, but like, I don't think you're going to understand it all or get everything you need out of it or should. And I think watching it as an adult, I think is great because it makes you sort of reflect upon your own experiences and, and be like, Hey, I didn't have it so bad. <laughs> like I was actually, I, uh, why was I depressed again? Like, I have no idea. Like this, <laughs> you know, like there's something almost cathartic, uh, about watching it and not having to have gone through it. You know what? Like we've talked about movies that, we have these spirited conversations about, and we talk about movies where we're not reaching for stuff, but it's more like, didn't you think that scene was funny or whatever? I love a film that's going going to inspire just conversation that's not just about the scenes and what's literally going on on screen. And this is one that I think everyone should see, and you know, and they're going to have an opinion on it one way or another. Yeah, like I'm not saying I'm right, right? I mean, I'm just this is how I read the movie. And I think that it's a completely valid reading. You know, I don't think that I'm reaching too far some places. Some I might be. I don't know exactly. But I'm, that's the other. I'm just I'm trying to analyze it and find things, you know, more about it. And, you know, I think it's very rich. I think on the surface it might not seem so. You just be like, oh, what is this? Like, it's kind of, it's not very exciting, you know, at first. It's the, but later, like, you, it just really grew on me. And I really grow grow close to these kids and, like, it's tough these days, especially, you know, there's just not, it feels like with a movie with this many characters, it's amazing how well you get to know everybody. Like nowadays movies struggle to uh, get across half this number of people. And most of the time they also have to throw in like two or three superhero fights, you know, and <laughs> it's even harder. So like, it was really nice to, to sort of be able to watch a movie that just took me along for the ride with it. So, I mean, we end with the shooting, as we say, and it, but it's, again, it's kind of fantasy, and we don't know where it's going, but if it even happened, but you, you still end with the feeling more than the literal here. Really quick, like, at the end of the movie, though, I, I mean, I think this is very much like what we were all, what we were talking about, I think this puts a very nice pin in everything, is um, after the movie Fades to Black, doesn't the title come up again, and it just says, if... Mm -hmm. dot dot Mm -hmm. dot dot so i think that says it all like what if like this may not have actually happened but what if this happened like this could be what if kind of thing i'm glad you bring that up because yeah i think that really is definitively telling you what's going on here i think it really also defines the fact that they're not just like existing these are thoughts that are in their head because of the environment that's created here maybe they don't act on it but like you said if they did this could happen. And it almost serves as like an institutional warning too. Like, you know, maybe we should rethink how we're raising these boys. <laughs> yeah. Even though, even though, you know, we're rooting for them, we're rooting for them because we're getting inside their heads and, and the director's creating empathy for them. If we read this news story in the paper, we're probably not going to root for them, you know, but watching the story and, and having it said that, and that's why if I think is a great title, it's better than the crusaders. Cause I think, I think that grounds it more in reality. It's almost like the Wanderers or the Warriors, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that it, it feels very gang-like. It, con- it connotates like sort of more of like a gang thing to me now, if you say like the Crusaders, yeah. Yeah, and instead, if is just like this is something that's happening, and if it continues possibly, this is these are things that could happen. And if you look at it in that lens, flash forward to the things we were avoiding talking about, actual school shootings, 
it's like, oh, shit, you know? So there's a lot of readings that you could take from this movie. There's just, like, the visceral reaction of watching all this, but there's also, like, the lesson they're trying to say. And there's a lot of satire here, obviously, so it's a criticism of this lifestyle. And, yeah, I mean, a criticism of the man, the establishment. Yeah. Um, so, so you mentioned that there are these sequels, and they're just really spiritual sequels. They don't actually take place after this. The one oh, okay. you said you saw one was called Oh Lucky Man. Was it Oh Lucky Man or Oh Lucky Day or something like that? Oh Lucky Man, I believe it's called. Okay, and okay. The lead character is Malcolm McDowell as Mick Travis. So you would think it's a sequel, but in actuality, it's just supposed to be, yes, this guy. Just kind of put in a different world, if that makes sense. Oh, okay. All right. Sort of like the Mad Max treatment, in a way, where it's like, eh, the events might have happened or not, or whatever. It's like, we got the same character, but we're dumping him into like a whole different universe, maybe. That apparently was the idea. Um, Lindsay Anderson directs, of course. It's his, it's his baby. The ending, apparently, is very, like, meta. He's actually playing himself as the director. Spoiler alert if you want to see it. Stop listening. Sorry. <laughs> Fast forward like 30 seconds or a minute. But Lindsay Anderson actually plays himself, and he slaps Travis, McTravis, and the script falls out from you know his pocket. So we don't know if really the McTravis became an actor, and he's playing in this movie, if that makes sense. you know. So that's how it could be related. Interesting. It's weird, and it's supposed to be, Wikipedia says it's an allegory for capitalist society. So who the hell knows? But that's supposed <laughs> to be the twist ending, and some people have said, oh, the movie is not a sequel in that respect, but the movie stars Mick Travis, who graduated the school to become an actor, and act in this movie called Oh, Lucky Man. Very weird. I don't know. All right. And the third one is the one you said you you were least familiar with called Britannia Hospital. And yeah. Th- that's apparently like a pure black comedy. Who who knows really what that one's like? This is the least known of them because that one came out in 1982. It says it follows the adventures of Mick Travis once again as he travels through a strange and sometimes surreal Britain. This one is actually connected to the other two because he actually travels. It travels through his journey through a boarding school as seen in If and his journey as a coffee salesman and Oh Lucky Man. So huh. they are related. You might have to cover Britannia Hospital on Third Time's a Charm. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like this is the next thing he did. You know, they're just different versions of this Mick character. I don't know. I'd kind of like to see that more in movies where it's like, let's take this character and drop them into a completely different world with a whole new crop of characters. Like, uh, I mean, just bad example, right? Like, uh, what if the Clarice TV show had nothing to do with the Silence of the Lambs world? Oh, and like, that's interesting. You know, she wasn't um, into forensics or stuff. I don't know. But yeah, that seems to be sort of the idea. Well, Mike, our path to covering this trilogy, because the second one is not a high school film, but he plays a coffee salesman in it. So we got to get our boy Kyle on Foodie Films <laughs> to, to, talk about, to talk about Oh Lucky Man on Foodie Films. And then we'll flip over to Third Time's a Charm and talk Britannia Hospital. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know the market not... for those, but whatever. Mm, I mean, we could do some kind of like Malcolm McDowell sort of crossover event, 
kind of thing going on, you know. But I Why can't not? wait for is uh, class of 1999 because uh, Roddy Mc wasn't it Roddy McDowell who was in class of 1984. Yeah, um, yeah. What? And then there's a there's also a class of 99 part two, which is I guess technically a part three. So we oh. can do that over on my show too, since it's not going anywhere. <laughs> interesting, interesting. <laughs> so one more note on the sequels to these films. There was actually a direct sequel being developed to If. It was at least in the writing hmm. stages. Was it called It? <laughs> yes, It. It's about a clown. No. <laughs> Lindsay Anderson, right before his death, completed the final draft, and he was ready to pitch it. It was called Founder's Day. And at this point, Mick Travis is an Oscar-nominated movie star who's eschewed England for Hollywood, who returns to his roots at the school. So it was tangentially connected to the other sequels, but this one was supposed to be literally just an if sequel. Like, you didn't need to watch the silliness that happened and the surrealness in those other two. Like, if you just wanted an if sequel, that's what this was supposed to be. It sounds weird, though. Apparently, Roundtree, which is, you know, one of the headmasters or one of the teachers, is kidnapped by anti-war students, and Mick and his gang have to rescue him and save the day but when they find, it's never going to get made, so I'll spoil it. But when they find him, they take Roundtree and crucify him instead. So is this a situation like Halloween where they're like, oh, you could watch the sequels, but they don't matter. It's more of a sequel to the original kind of situation. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. They've been talking about doing that with like aliens forever. I mean, I don't know. All right. Interesting. It's just weird, but okay. It's... It is very weird. It's like a Days of Future Past kind of thing, too. It never got made, so it really doesn't matter. But I thought that was interesting that, like, he's a Hollywood actor. He's tasked with kind of getting his old crusaders back to save the headmaster. They save him, and then they crucify him. <laughs> and again, that was probably going to be surreal as well, because if he survived for all these other mm -hmm. movies, we know that that massacre didn't happen then. Right. I, I'm sure we've talked your ear off on if that's a there's a lot of background for this, so I think it's time, Mike, to give some awards out. Okay. All right, new award for 2021, most likely to succeed. Who won the movie here? Who comes out on top in your mind, Mike? Oh, um, hmm, I guess, um, I guess Malcolm McDowell, right? I mean, <laughs> if he's got the high ground. Yeah, how could you not say uh, Mick here? How could you not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is definitely like we're in his perspective, his point of view. So, uh, yeah, I, I like that. I'm, I'm my, all right with that. My only quick argument against it would be if theoretically you thought that like this wasn't a surrealist ending and you thought it was actually taking place, there's no way he's surviving that onslaught or the hell that's going to be paid upon him. Oh, there. yeah. But we both agree that that's not the case. He goes on to do other films. So, <laughs> so uh yeah, we'll, we'll call him the winner here. Wooderson Award. Is there a character in this film who you would have liked a little bit more focus on? Um, maybe the girl. Maybe uh, she popped up one or two frames more. I don't know exactly. Uh, oh, maybe the... Um, you know what? I wouldn't have minded one more headmaster scene of him being a oh, total yeah. loser. <laughs> That's a good idea. That's a good idea. I like that a lot. <laughs> Cameron Fry Award. Hard to say here because we don't really understand British ages. Plus, everyone of that era looks like all the seniors look like they're adults. So it's hard to really say. So we might just skip this one of who's too old to be a high schooler. Kind of doesn't fit, you know. Okay. Unless you had a pick. Nope, not really. I felt a couple of them looked a little young to be there. But other than that. And again, I think that was part of the aesthetic of the film. 
Like yes. You're, you're, yeah. you're so new. You're so young. You know. I was a little worried at first. I got to be honest because I didn't remember it entirely. I was like, oh shit! I hope like there's older kids in this movie because when it starts, I was like, is this a junior high school? <laughs> Who knows? I mean, if that was the case, we probably still would have done it because we've we've gone on the borderline a bit. All right. Let's grade this thing. Rotten Tomatoes, 92% by the critics, 87% by the audience, which I was really surprised about because I thought there'd be some naysayers from this era who didn't get it in context. But 87% still really high. Maybe those are found on Letterboxd. Still a really good Letterboxd score, 3.7 out of 5. But we're not hitting that 4 number, which I know is rare. I've been told that that's rare. I think the Malcolm McDowell factor plays a lot into the screenings of this movie now i think i think it comes across in a weird way as like a prequel to clockwork orange you know like we were kind of saying that like a little bit at the Mm. beginning that we he took the he took the character and basically like implanted it into that world you know under those circumstances and things so he's like a way more cruel version than this dude you know a uh, spiritually you know i'm not saying it is but like i think that maybe people see it in that way uh because it's violent it's got malcolm mcdowell it's uh it's anti-class like all that kind of stuff you know so yeah i don't know i think it's it's uh, got a good reputation I, I think if you and i post-pandemic or pre-pandemic wherever you want to be were in brooklyn at like an artsy theater or you know like a nighthawk or something and we're just at the bar talking and someone's like yeah i love clockwork orange love clockwork orange you and I would probably be like, oh, have you seen If? You should really check out If. To me, you can't talk about If without talking about Clockwork Orange. Yeah. I think so many people probably even, like, similar to you, discovered this through Clockwork Orange. In, in the right. United States, at least. Yes. Yeah, totally. Thinking it was. <laughs> <laughs> but, Mike, we don't care about those critical reviews. We're rebels here. We don't care about the critics. I'm going to hand you the red pen. I'm handing you the Manila report card. A plus oh to F scale. Oh, what boy. will you grade if? I mean, I got to give it an A, right? I feel like I haven't given one in a, in a couple episodes anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, undeniable. Like, even if you don't like the movie, like, I think it's a really well-made art film. You know, like, it's it's not a mod, it's not a mainstream film. So, like, you got to sort of temper your expectations on, on that level. Um, there's very harsh themes underneath the surface here you know like the more you kind of pick at it like uh the worse it kind of gets as far as like this microcosm of society and i think all of that is good like this is all it's doing things that cinema should do you know it's like educating people and things on that level and you know i'm not saying it's the only movie to do that but like it's just nice to be able to um sort of do this on your show once in a while I love talking about any kind of movies, but, you know, once in a while we get, like, a uh, art film from the 60s, you know, made in London or made in the UK uh, that's, like, completely foreign to any of my experiences I've ever had. So I loved it. For sure. I'm going to give it an A as well. I loved it. I loved watching it. It was such a change from what we normally do. And even, okay, for example, we've done another late 60s British film on this show, To Sir With Love, which I did with uh, Kyle and... John Harden, which I really loved. I love Sidney Poitier. But it's 67 to 68 here. One year difference. It feels so different. It's worlds apart. To Serve With Love is very mod, as you said. And this film, and, and it very much feels of the era. This film, though, the themes and what's happening 
are of the era. It felt at times like I was watching a film from today. So I think it does have, I know it's the opposite of kind of what we've been saying the whole time, but I think it does have some timeless qualities in the way, again, that it was shot and the way that it looks. And I I can't not give this film an A. I would reckon, I, one of my big measuring sticks on this podcast for my grading, I know people say I'm way too easy, but whatever. I think about, are there like four or five people who haven't seen the film that I could really recommend it to? And I have a list of people that I want to recommend this film to. So I can't go lower than an A. I'm with you. A as well. Yeah, it's I'm glad you, you said uh, what you did about sort of like the, the, the technique and, and the form of this film. Like, I really feel like it, not that it hasn't been done, like, you know, there's there's cinema verite you know since like the 30s and 40s of course and stuff but like it'll really seep into the mainstream in like the next 10 years in america you know when they're doing this same sort of style with like the french connection is sort of shot you know like that or like easy rider like i mentioned before like this will become a staple of uh modern cinema like looks and and technique and and so like a lot of films are going to come out soon that kind of look like this uh, and I'm not saying it's the first or anything, but it's, I, you know, we just watched it. So, like, it's part of that class. It's part of that year, part of that, you know, era where things are changing, you know. Sure, there's a lot of, like, static shots in this film as well, but the camera it moves. Like, it's handheld. It's just all over. It does whatever it wants, and it tries to be a fly on a wall for the most of the film. And that style is definitely going to come into its own for, like, American mainstream cinema. For sure. Uh, I think, again, I don't, I'm not a film scholar enough to say that it is ahead of its time, but it definitely feels important in the way it's shot and obviously themes and all that. So love talking about it. I, I hope more people in America are familiar with this film like they are in the UK. And maybe they, maybe they will be after this podcast. Maybe we'll make If Famous in the USA. <laughs> Probably not. But <laughs> <laughs> If Sleeping Bag feels weird to say. But what does your if sleeping bag look like at the slumber party, Mike? Mm. I guess it would be like a collage of people cut out of a magazine, like sort of like their Ooh, wall. I like that. Yeah, except they have like, like he's got like crazy shit on his wall from like, like there's a lot of allusions to the way of like how I guess England, you know, used to rule a lot of parts of Africa and India and stuff like that. Like, um, there's a lot of that on his walls, you know, there's a lot of just, it seems like traditional African and Indian imagery and, and stuff. So like, that was kind of interesting to think about too, is just how all that seeped in. I saw it as kind of anti-imperialism, believe it or not. As, yes. As silly, no. As silly as it is, but. No, no. So did I. I think that was the, the idea behind that was like the, like, look how kind of ridiculous this got or something to, and through his eyes, I think he was mocking it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he also had like all the ladies like posted up too and stuff <laughs> like that. But like, I think I would have sort of like a collage sleeping bag. I love it. I'm going to do sort of the opposite. I want mine to look like one of those old portraits they had on the wall of like, oh. what they, you know, uh, famous Bretons who perhaps graduated from that academy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to use. All right, Mike, your favorite question every week where we see if you did your homework or not. (laughs) You and I are in the magical, magical blockbuster that has every movie that has ever existed up until this date 
today where almost at the counter waiting in this line and we see a sign it's there every time but it surprises us for some reason and it says rent two movies get one free and i say mike i'm gonna keep our place in line we know we're renting if bring up two other movies that you think will pair well with if for our slumber party what are those two other movies um had a quick question about the rules of the rental release thing here. I think this is the first time this has ever come up. Can I recommend a movie I've never seen before that I want to rent? <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? Okay. Has anyone ever done that? Has anyone recommended a movie they've never seen? Usually it's movies they've seen, but I think it has happened occasionally when it's like tangentially related to the film, you know? But Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely... Okay, it's tangentially related to the film, well, and it's well, part of, like... It would be silly if you were like, oh, I really want to watch Black Widow, but it hasn't came out, come out yet. So, <laughs> no, you know, if it's related, it's cool. Okay, and it's only one of my two picks, but I was like, I gotta, I want to do this theme on the show, and I want to talk about one of these and, and how I want to see the other one. Okay, so first, I guess, is the, the movie that I've seen. Um, and I, w- I will mention that both, both of these are also in the Criterion Collection, Ooh, uh, and they're copies that I own, so that was sort of, and they're and they're British films, um, so those were like the the criteria uh, that I had a, had going on. Nice. This first movie I feel like is a really popular movie that a lot of people are gonna at least know the title, if not have seen it. Um, With nail and I. With nail and I. Interesting. Yeah, have you not heard of this movie? I have not. So I guess now, um, like oh, Richard E. Grant, with nail. Yeah, with nail. With okay. nail is an is a person's name. With nail, um, oh. he's a character. Oh yes. Um, Richard E. Grant is in this, and he was sort of having a moment like a year or two ago. He was in, he was getting a lot of accolades. He was in the last Star Wars movie and everything. But this is a really great movie um, about a couple of drunks who go out into the country and. Uh, get more drunk and then, like they're just flamboyant alcoholic best friends that uh, smoke too much drink too much i almost wondered if absolutely fabulous was sort of uh based almost a part in parody on with nail and i are you familiar with that show yes absolutely fabulous for sure and now i kind of know why i know this movie isn't the correct me if i'm wrong but isn't the roadie character from the second wayne's world Yes. And based on someone in this movie? Yes. Okay. Exactly. That's, that's yeah. So, so same actor, same character uh, reappears in Wayne's World 2. Yeah. That's my own lighting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's how I'm familiar with it. Nice. <laughs> uh, but like the cover's a great Ralph Steadman drawing. Like it's a very famous cover uh, or poster, I should say. And. Yeah, it's just it's it's a lot of fun. I really like. I mean, it's also a little depressing, but it's like British black humor from the '80s, you know. So I guess part of it is like watching Father Ted, a little bit. <laughs> that that was the show, right? Like, I think I mentioned I'm not much of an Anglophile. Uh, I've seen a couple seasons of Doctor Who, so that's the first film. Second film. Um, second film. I've uh, I've owned this for a, like over a year, and I just have not gotten to it yet. So hopefully, this will make me watch it. This is another British film. It's from 1993. It's called Naked. And it stars um, David Thulius. Is that how you pronounce his last name? David David 
Thulios. Thulies. <laughs> I'll take your word uh, for it. He's the he's in Harry Potter. He's the werewolf guy in Harry oh. Potter. Oh. So he's in that. He's in Wonder Woman. He's yeah. uh, Ares in Wonder I love Woman. That guy. Yeah, yeah. He's a great actor. And this. I think was his uh, breakout role, maybe. I'm not sure if it's the first thing he's done. I don't think so. But, like, I was put onto this movie, I think, from an Edgar Wright interview also. Again, Edgar Wright, the source of a lot of, like, um, me discovering, like, he just, you know what I'm saying? He just, like, focused my attention uh, over there. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, I've I've heard this is an amazing movie with, like, an amazing performance, and he's basically... um, a dirtbag, I guess. Like, I think he's a homeless guy who just sort of drifts around trying to like make it day by day. What and What's so, you in a uh, homeless movies like Drillbit Taylor? Yeah, I don't know, man. I wonder if Drillbit Taylor was sort of the uh, sequel or like the American retelling. <laughs> but David, uh, so it's pronounced. I looked it up. Thulus. Okay, because it, it looks like the Willis. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. Uh, this is his breakout performance. He won the con. Film Festival Best Actor Award for it. So uh, I'm excited. Like, this is going to be a fun summer yeah. party. Yeah, I want to see him, like, just unleashed or whatever, doing whatever, like, on rants and raving and all that stuff. So hopefully I could uh, remember to watch this soon. So very uh, British set of films you've picked, Mike. I love it. It's going to be a fun, fun slumber party. So, of course, you know, you're on High School Slumber Party a lot. You'll be on again. We already know some projects we're doing. I know you're going to be a big part of a... Uh, a big part of a series we're going to be um, uh, discussing here that's going to uh, feature some very famous actors who became good friends of each other who have the same first name. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I know you'll probably drop in for a couple of those films. Get out of my dreams. <laughs> but Mike, where can people follow you, find you? Tell them about our recent, recent fun little trip on Third Time's a Charm and everything else you're doing. So Brian and I are going, going back, back to Sicily, Sicily, because on, uh, on my one show, Third Times a Charm, where I uh, we look at the third film in a franchise, uh, we Brian and I talked about The Godfather, Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, over on my show that was posted March 3rd, so that is available, you can check that out, very good episode. Um, very interesting stuff. You know, we talk about all the various Uncle Francis cuts out there. And since then, I discovered that they had that uh, the Cotton Club remake or recut. Sorry, the, there's a new cut of that, too. So, like, the quest continues. It's like a whole whole thing going on. Ooh, we, uh, you know, we bandied about a lot of ideas regarding it, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's something I think, you know, I'd love to explore further. We'll just put it that yes. way. All the yeah. Francis... All the Francis alternate cuts as well. Uh, so every third of the month is third times a charm. And then the final Friday of every month is the monsters that made us, which is Dan Cologne and myself are going through the history of the universal monster movies and beyond. So join us over there. This last month, we just put out the invisible man starring Claude Rains, directed by James Wales. Uh, very, very cool movie. Um, Dan gets into a lot of the uh, behind the scenes. Uh, we talk about the cutting edge special effects, all types of great stuff over there. And then 
Cage Club Prime, the original Cage Club with Joey, the podfather, and myself. We've done two Cage episodes already this year. Very exciting. The History of Swear Words on Netflix. And then uh, Willie's Wonderland, where Cage battles animatronic monsters in, uh, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a kid's uh, amusement uh, establishment. I don't know what to call that place. What do you, it's like a Chuck E. Cheese. But yeah, he battles evil monsters or evil uh, animatronics in that, and that's a blast. And even Tom Hanks had a movie this year, the um, the Red Dead Redemption 2 side quest known as News of the World, <laughs> where he travels around town to town telling news and then has to rescue and deliver a young girl back to her family. Um, so check all that out on cageclub.me. You're a busy man, and uh, there's a lot of, uh, not really cage connections, but a lot of connections with the things you've said. So, of course, you're on The Monsters That Made Us, and you're, way, you're going through the original Universal Monsters, and you're way, way early, obviously. Uh, oh, yeah, we're in the 30s, yeah. <laughs> our man Francis has covered a, not a Universal Monster, but yes, one of them in a different form, if you remember. Yes. That I think it's been covered at least twice on the Cage Club Podcast Network. That's true. Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, we did it for Keanu Club, and I think the ladies did it for Winona Forever, right? Because that's she's what in I was that guessing, movie. right? Yeah, she's yeah, in Yeah, I so. think, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that version. I mean, that's a beautiful version. You know what's interesting about that? No digital effects. Everything is in camera. So when you're watching that, that will blow your mind. That It's all models and you know, rear screen projection and, and map paintings and, and like they, uh, you know, multiple exposures and every, all the old tricks that they did to make the uh, original films like he was trying to pull off in that movie. So very cool. And there was a, I had an Invisible Man note today for If as well. I said that uh, when uh, Mick kind of comes to the school originally, he kind of has that Invisible Man feel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what else? The, the Invisible Man would have been perfectly fine and at home in america this whole last year because when i left the house i looked just like him in disguise and i know <laughs> i know other friends of mine too have had to sort of layer up in the similar ways when they're navigating you know people outside these days and then one more thing i just want to say about monsters that made us invisible man like if you enjoyed the uh deep dive if you want to call it that that we did today on if it doesn't even come close to the deep dives you guys do when it comes to these uh, monsters that made us thing. Very, very intelligent and a little, and not that it's not fun. I don't want to say that, but a lot of a uh, a lot of reading goes into your monsters that made us podcast. That's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Dan does double the research over there on that show. Absolutely, yeah. It's awesome. There are shows where it's just like visceral reaction shows that you know you and I even do on this network, right? And then there are shows that are just like. You're gonna you're gonna learn something. It's not just opinion, and definitely that's my endorsement for the monsters that made us. It's like a lesson <laughs> in these universal film, uh, universal monster movies. He's he's kind of warned me that that might peter off for a while once we've sort of oh, passed well, the threshold. Of like well, it takes a lot great. of work, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> no, but also like uh, subsequent movies may not have all that much going on behind the scenes because fair, of fair. sort of the change in staff and leadership at the studio and um, quality and all that kind of thing going on. So he was even saying to me, he's like, don't worry about editing. They're going to get shorter. And I was like, well, I don't, it doesn't bother me. I'm I'm learning a lot and I'm loving it. So, so either way. And you're still debuting Monsters. So we're not at sequels yet, right? Or are we? The March episode, which is at the end of the month, is the first sequel, which is Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, okay, cool. So I, we're I finally like getting also... into it. I feel like you're also debuting 
the bride in there. Oh too, yeah, it's so. it's a double. It's kind of a double thing going on where it's almost like, yeah, we're debuting the bride, and it's just it's less a sequel, more of like the rest of the book, I guess. I don't know. We'll get we get into it though for sure. Can't wait to hear that episode, and can't wait till you're on again, Mike. A lot of a, a lot of backdoor. Uh, pilots and backdoor episodes that we've teased that you'll be on here in this episode so you know looking forward to it thanks again mike oh absolutely and thanks for letting me recommend a movie i haven't seen (laughs) (laughs) you've been you've been in our high school long enough you can bend the rules at this point awesome well thanks thank you thanks again and uh anytime cheerio Oh, well, ever was there ever a guy as clever as Magical Michael Manzee. Woo! My voice was shot. (laughs) I don't know why I decided to break into cats there. It has nothing to do with this movie, but Mike is a cool cat. Love when Mike Manzee comes on. Appreciate him so much and loved the conversation that him and I had on if i hope you guys loved it too if you did let us know on social media once again class participation is a huge part of your grade facebook instagram twitter and you could always email me at high school slumber party at gmail.com that is high school slumber party at gmail.com all right i mentioned it before moxie remember to check out that episode of contenders tuesday the 16th i'm on it with tobin addington and island addington But we're also going to cover Moxie here, and we're going to do it next Friday. So that's your homework. Watch Moxie for both podcasts. Hey, Mom, what do uh, 16-year-olds care about? When I was 16, all I cared about was smashing the patriarchy and burning it all down. Oh, my God. Girls constitute a revolution. Did you hear rankings are already starting? Emma Cunningham's just going to get ranked most bangable for the second year in a row. Kira Pascal for best ass. Caitlin Price will take best rap. It's so nice not to be on anyone's radar. Totally. You miss me? Seriously? We're going! Oh, can I help you? I don't know, can you? He's bothering you. He's harassing me. If you use that word, that means I have to do a bunch of stuff. You know that your school is weird, right? Ignore Mitchell. If you keep your head down, we'll move on and bother somebody else. I'm gonna keep my head up. Hi. Why have we all accepted it? Like, no one even blinks. Me and my friends protested everything. We made a ton of mistakes. But you're glad you did it all, right? Of course. What are you going to do, nothing? Whoever wrote Moxie is a badass. You know what's messed up? I got sent home for wearing a tank top. Meanwhile, Jason is constantly shirtless. People refuse to call me by my new name. I don't like being voted best ass to draw hearts and stars on your hands to show support. That's hot. All the boys here could use all the help they could get. Don't keep secrets from me. I'm actually already pregnant. It's a very funny joke. Right? I would love to know who started Moxie. And who will they go after next? This seems like a women's issue, and I'm going to stay out of it. If you're doing nothing, then you're part of the problem. Noticing someone filming right now, and uh, I have to go to the bathroom so bad. I hate that we are shoved aside. Dismissed? Nobody does anything. Nobody listens to us. Ref.
revolution, baby. Hey, ladies first. Or, or can, I, can I say that? Or get, do you want to go first? Yeah. Yeah? Thanks. Absolutely. Oh. And of course, Moxie's on the flicks, Netflix that is. Check it out. Really easy to find, really easy to see. Very curious your thoughts on it. So this Friday, we're going to be talking on High School Slumber Party with Jenny O'Connell. And I think Jenny's take is going to be a little bit different than Tobin and Island's take. So both are mandatory homework. Listen to the Contenders episode. Listen to our episode here on High School Slumber Party. If you've heard of Jenny O'Connell episode before... Well, you know, Jenny can be opinionated. Apologies once again to James Corden. (laughs) Not really, but those of you out there who are big listeners of the show will remember that episode where she tore a hole through James Corden's universe. (laughs) I don't think that's going to happen here. I already watched Moxie. I enjoyed it. I think she did too. I just think the take is going to be a little different. That's all I'm saying. So tune in next Friday and find out exactly what I'm talking about. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Hopefully, you didn't have a high school experience like Malcolm McDowell's high school experience. And if, and if you did, I apologize. (laughs) Probably not the show for you then. (sighs) Remember, as we curl up into those sleeping bags, life moves pretty fast. And if you don't stop to look around once in a while, You could miss it. Later, dudes. You're still here?
It's over. Go home. Go.